Good evening, Jason. Hey, Alex. Did you have a good weekend? Yeah. I, I think our podcast had a great weekend. Our podcast did have a great weekend. I mean, we had almost 100 plays on our most recent episode. I think that's because of the way you titled it. It Why? topped 100 a day. It did? Yeah, that's oh, our quickest man. episode to 100 yet. Man, that's awesome. I, I bet it's due to, in part to the title that you gave it, Why Satan Won the Election, Not Trump. Yeah, I had uh, some family members not too happy with me. Yeah, I saw that. I saw some. I saw some Facebook battle started starting mm. on uh, your social media page on your Facebook page, and I was like, if people would just listen to the episode, we talk about this. Yeah, I had people respond to the title with scripture, to which I replied, "Listen to the episode." <laughs> Because exactly. there was definitely a little bit of clickbait there. But actually, um, on top of that, we got we f- we broke two thousand plays. Which I know is, it, which is something incredible. Which is something that I thought we would never get to by December. And Oliver and I made a cool little Lego art. Oh, that picture. was that was really cute that you did that with your child. It's on our Instagram. Or did you do that by yourself? And you're just trying to redeem yourself by saying that you did that with your child. I did it by myself. <laughs> <laughs> You're lame. He added some stuff to it, but I made sure I took the picture before his additions were there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, also on top of that, we got some new uh, new people following us on Facebook. You want to read some names? Yeah. Off? We just okay. Thank you so much for getting us over our 200 person or 200 likes, essentially. Yeah. So Casey, John, Zach, Doug, and Ben, you all liked the episode, and I said in our last episode I would count that as my birthday present. If we would just get one more like, because we were at 199 forever, and now we're at 204. And so I have to thank some people for that. So I don't want to read your last names, because I can't pronounce some of them, and uh, privacy and all that. But you know who you are. Well, just just so just let you know, Jason, Doug, his wife went on his page and then liked our page. So really, it was two likes for his wife and only one like. That's okay. I'm still I'm I'm still okay with that. But uh why don't we talk about what we're going to be doing here, Jason? What where are we and what are we recording today? We are in a business called Sutorial. Oh, and it smells great. In it here. smells fantastic in here. Uh it's owned by a, a a Flint native, uh Tim Goodrich. He makes uh boots and shoes here and repairs them and he just just a really nice guy, and he agreed to come on our podcast. But what is it that we're going to talk about with him? This is this is going to be controversial. I'm, I'm sure we're, some people are going to send us Bible verses, and they're going to ask, what are you doing there? Well, why don't we save that and let him explain? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, but to set up, to set the kind of tone of our episode before we get into it, I, I got something I want to read. All right. It's something from history. Okay. Um. And something actually about the the Protestant Reformation. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read. This is something that I wrote today, and uh, I hope everybody. Likes you know, it. it makes me nervous when we don't go over stuff before recording, right? I know it's not part of your pretty little outline, but just trust me, okay? Oh, okay. All right, here we go. It was a cold night in Wittenberg, 1517. A Catholic monk lurked in the shadows, waiting for his opportune moment. In his hand, he had a piece of paper, a hammer, and a nail. When the street was finally clear. He made a break for it, running through the streets until he arrived at his destination. This will change everything, he thought to himself. Bang, went the first hammer hit. Bang, bang, bang. The nail found its mark securely planted on the cathedral door. Its cargo was a document that contained 95 grievances against the Roman Catholic Church. Mr. Ollivander cried, bravo. Yes, indeed. Very good. Well, well, well. How curious. How very curious. He put Harry's wand back in its box, still muttering, curious curious 
Mr. Ollivander fixed Harry with a pale stare. I remember every wand I've ever sold, Mr. Potter. <laughs> every single wand. It just so happens that the phoenix, whose feather or tail feather is in your wand, gave another feather. Just one other. It's very curious that you should be destined for this wand when its brother, Wyatt's brother, gave you that scar. And that is how the Protestant Reformation begun. <laughs> Did you write that? Yeah, I wrote that. I'm really impressed. That was great. <laughs> I sometimes get Harry Potter and Martin Luther confused. Yeah. But I mean, I feel like they're both worshipped by their teams. You know, yeah, like you know the reform sure. the reform guys worship Luther like he's you know right on par with Jesus, and you know a bunch of young teenagers worship Harry Potter like he's one of their best friends. Yeah. I mean, not to make fun of your writing skills, but that was impressive. Yeah. I wrote for I, you. I mean, especially. I'm an awful writer. That's and why then... nobody reads my blogs. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Your blogs actually get more read than mine do. Anyway, <laughs> let's get into the episode because this is ridiculous. I just wanted to read that and just kind of set up the stage for our podcast. And by the way, this is not your pastor's podcast. Welcome, new listeners. If you are a new listener, my name is Alex. I'm Jason. And we are here with Tim Goodrich. Say hi to the folks, Tim. Hello. <laughs> awesome, man. Thank you so much for having us in your shop. I, this is, I mean, this is beautiful. Like, how, I just want to ask, how old are some of your machines in here? Because they look in pristine condition, but they look like they're from a different era, for sure. Yeah, I, I would say that... A lot of them, well, some of them are probably made anywhere from like 1910 to 19... 1910? I think so. I think one of my soul stitchers back there was made probably in the the 1910s, I would have. I'm pretty sure it was. It feels like walking back in time when you walk through the front door of this place. Or I guess, is that the front door or is that the back door? Oh, it's my front door. It's the back door to the building, but it's my front door. Man. This um, is so awesome. The hard, the old hardwood floors, the the brick, and like just the. What do you do here, actually? Uh, primarily make boots, uh, do a little bit of shoe repair, and a little bit of shoe lesson, shoe making lessons, but mostly just making boots at this point, anyways. Awesome. How, how in the world did you get into shoe and boot making? Like it doesn't seem like too many people are doing that these days yeah well the short answer would be that uh a few years ago i well uh, my and my answer is just to tell you what i was doing immediately prior to it and then how i got into it but i was i worked at a church a, a small baptist church kind of over by kettering university did a lot of inner inner city ministry kind of stuff okay and um also got had my hand a little bit in business. You mentioned Rob Clady. He and I um, essentially started the, the the Flint Crepe Company. It was, or you could say, the precursor. I mean, we called it the Flint Crepe Company, but it was just a cart, a crepe cart I on, on Saginaw yeah. Street. And then I departed the business right before the the um, the restaurant opened up. So, but anyways, I was involved with Rob Clady and have stayed friends with him. And, uh, so I was, so I was working at a church and did the, the Flint Crepe Company simultaneously. And then, um, 
I and that part of this ties into how I ended up becoming Catholic because there was some weird church stuff that happened. I'm excited and, to get into that. <laughs> yeah. And so I decided that I wanted to do something where I didn't that didn't have anything to do with working for a church or anything like that. And so I wanted to um I had I had looked into make I wanted to make a pair of shoes for myself. And so I was looking that up online and I realized that there was this whole world of shoemaking that I'd never knew like handmade shoes that I was just totally intrigued by. And so um I was actually going to just start figuring out how to do that just myself. And then just through books and videos, like really learn how to make shoes while I was doing the other things. And uh, through a series of cer- long series of circumstances, both of those things came to a close at the same time. The, sh- the working at the church and working uh, with Rob at the crepe company. And, uh, so I just decided, you know, and I'm, I'm not married. I have never been married. I don't have any kids. So I just decided, you know, I'm just going to, I didn't have any attachments in that sense. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to go learn how to, I'm going to go do a shoemaking apprenticeship, learn how to make shoes and figure out if there's a way I can do that for a living. And so that's, that's the, the quick version. And then, so I did an apprenticeship for a year or close to a year and then came back here and opened a shoe shop. Um, in 2013. So are you, when you, when you write on your taxes, do you write cobbler then? Is that what, or do you write shoemaker? You write shoemaker, shoemaker yeah. instead. <laughs> Cobbler's too 19th century for this. Actually that, you know, there's a word before that, cause te- technically speaking, cobbler refers to somebody who uh, repairs shoes and maybe reconstructs uh, shoes from old shoes. Uh, the term, for shoemaker, who one who makes shoes from scratch, used to be cordwainer, and there was a harsh, there was a pretty harsh distinction between cordwainer and cobbler. And if you were a cobbler, you couldn't call yourself a cordwainer. That was back in there was the, like the, a secret the, club the days and of the guilds, yeah. the guilds and that oh, kind of stuff. Man, that's some good history right there. Yeah. Yeah. There needs to be like a Netflix documentary about that. <laughs> they can start here, and then they can kind of work their way out and go into the history. Probably take them back over to Europe and all yeah, that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. If that's anybody like, wants that, I'll sell the rights because I just made it up. Huh. <laughs> that's like I would be like considered a design engineer, but when I'm at work, I go by the term just designer because I don't like having the engineer on there. Yeah, because I don't feel worthy of it. <laughs> I don't ever refer to myself as a cordwainer. I feel it would be somewhat pretentious. So. If somebody calls me a cord or a, a cobbler, I'm more than happy to be called yeah. a cobbler. I mean, I'm looking at your boots and your shoes that you've got around the shop here. And how long have you been doing this? Uh, four or five years. It does not. It looks like you've been doing this a whole lot longer than four or five years. Like, it's impressive. Like, this was your grandfather's business and you inherited it uh, down yeah. through the family line. Yeah, that, I wish. I wish I had been doing it that long. But, um, no, only about. Yeah. For depending on how you, if you start at my my apprenticeship, uh, coming up on five years, that's incredible. So anyway, let's get into the heart of the matter because I mean these boots are in- incredible. The craftsmanship, I, you can just tell that they're they're very well made. The machinery is legit. It's 
it's the stuff like you said before this is stuff that they were using at the beginning of the 20th century yeah and it still works so that tells you something that, about just the ingenuity that as, as a country that we had in the beginning of the 20th century but i want to get into a very interesting topic something that's very interesting to me especially because i grew up catholic and so i grew up catholic i didn't I guess I didn't really have that personal relationship with with Christ through my faith in Catholicism. It was just kind of something that our family did on Sundays, and eventually we stopped going on Sundays, and we only went on Christmas and Easter. And then on, like, Tuesday nights, I would go to catechism class, and I would learn all about uh, Catholicism and just the different aspects of it. And then when I hit high school, that's when I really kind of just walked away from faith in the Catholic Church altogether, and then it wouldn't be until I was 17 when I went to uh, a small Baptist church in uh, Metamora, Michigan, where I, I heard the gospel and got saved. And so you, I've heard a lot of stories of, pro, or of Catholics converting over to Protestantism, but I haven't heard too many stories going the opposite. So that's why we're here with Tim, and I'm really excited to kind of get into this. Yeah, just to back up a little bit, when we met with Rob Clady at Tenacity Brewery, yeah. In episode five? Was yeah. it five? It was episode five. When we met with him, he had told us about you, Tim, and your journey converting from, what would you say, Reformed or Protestant yeah. to Catholicism? Re- I would just say broadly, evangelical Protestantism, slightly with a Reformed tinge to it. But, <laughs> it sounds uh, like I'm it's ordering It's crazy how Starbucks. many flavors we have. <laughs> So My, I, I have a couple of truly reformed friends that would uh, that would quibble over whether or not I had any was reformed at all. But um. okay, well, whatever. We're gonna have an awesome conversation. So I'm really excited. Yeah, Rob tipped us off, and and I'm I'm excited to hear about your journey. What what goes into that decision making? Pro- that cannot be an easy decision to make. Yeah, like, was, I can't it, imagine. It, it, there were, it, there was definitely some uh, some real tough. There was there was a lot of tough um, wrestling with the issues that I just I felt like I was being pulled in both directions. I mean, I I wanted there were some really strong things pulling me into the Catholic Church that were attractive to me, and other things that were slightly repulsive to me, and so it was really tough to figure out what was the right way to go on that. So So are we going to come out of this interview with people hating you on both sides? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> That's fine. I don't, I, I, to be honest with you, I really don't care. Well, I slightly do, but my, the th- part of the reason I think why I became Catholic was because I don't, I, to be honest with you, I don't, if, if, so I actually believe that there is such a thing as objective truth, first of all. Okay. So, for me, I'm I'm actually trying to discover like if there is a right way to live or a right thing to believe, and maybe there isn't. I, I know a lot of people believe that. I, I happen to believe that there is, and so I want to discover what that is. So if I discovered if I, that Christianity was a sham, I don't care that I was brought up as a Christian. Mm-hmm. I, I want to know what is actually true, and so if I discovered that there was some unique claim to truth within Buddhism or Hinduism. I would like to think that I would be willing to plow headlong into that. So to I think, be open-minded. Exactly. And I, I realize I'm, n- nobody's entirely unbiased. Yeah. And so uh, I certainly am not. But to the best of my ability, I am trying to, to be as unbiased 
and look at what what makes the most sense. So that's at least for me, that's why I've ended up in the Catholic Church. I realize that's not where everybody ends up, but for me that's You said and this is one of the parts of the story that's really intriguing to me is that you worked at a Baptist church kind of doing a lot of uh just inner city uh ministries. Yeah. Which is which is what I was doing about two or three years ago. So th- this is I'm curious, am I gonna go back? because now i don't i'm not there at the church and now i'm like you know maybe i can go back Uh, i don't know but i'm kind of curious what what you did and then how you got to the point where you are now okay so when you say what i did how what do you what do you i mean what what you did at uh at the church oh okay the church that you worked at okay so yeah that's your question right now okay so (laughs) um i you know, I think my title was community associate, which in effect meant that I did a little bit of everything there. Yeah. So um, they so did a lot of work familiar. with with inner city <laughs> youth. And so I did a lot of that inner city youth ministry, some organizing activities, a little bit of grant related stuff, some mentoring stuff, um, some a fair amount of preaching on Sundays. I uh, led the music there for quite a while, um, just which is basically just playing my guitar and singing with one or two other musicians. Um, so that's basically what I, yeah. I, I wasn't the senior pastor, but. Cool. Like I said, this sounds very oddly familiar. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if it, if this gets too personal, no, no, you don't no, have you to can answer ask me it. Anything. But why did you? Why? What, what was the breaking point for you? Is there a breaking? Is point? Is there a breaking point? Yeah. Why? I guess why did you leave your? Because I like to think that I would still be at my job, at working for a church if I didn't get laid off. Yeah. But I got laid off, and that kind of sparked within me this this idea. Maybe I I shouldn't be working for a church. Yeah. So what was what was that spark for you that said, ah, oh, maybe I shouldn't be working for a church? Oh, so not necessarily having to do with the Protestant Catholic thing, but just not a church. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Yeah, I'm very curious. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I, this is I, an I, there Alex was, personal aside. I, I, I didn't necessarily at that point conclude that I was never going to work for a church again. I just was like, I was a little bit burned out on some stuff. Amen, and, dude. And uh, <laughs> and there was some. There, there was. It was kind of the the. There's this this whole the year 2011 was really bizarre and it would probably take the whole one entire episode to tell you everything that happened that year but some really weird bizarre crazy stuff happened we were getting ready to we were thinking about merging with another church and I'll just at just leave it at that just some weird stuff happened like borderline cult like stuff and um the pastor of my church who I'm still good friends with. He was an old guy. And um, there was like, he was just a normal, run-of-the-mill, happy, God-loving Baptist pastor. And he started having like these prophetic dreams that year, and um, which kind of came into play. And so it was kind of clear, like, um, it seemed, at least to me, really clear that God was a particular direction that God was leading or as it were not wanting us to go and it just spun out really really weird and it was it, more, i realize i'm being extremely vague but 
it caused me it was just a bad it was a bad church experience it sounds to me like we ran out of money so i'm gonna tell everybody i had these dreams <laughs> instead of just saying you're fired <laughs> no the, no, the, no 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 the prophetic so. dream thing that was to me that was something that this he, he's he wasn't the kind of guy to just go making these kinds of things okay. up it was for him the, the, he had the credibility to me that um because it also lined up with things that i just saw with my own eyes and so the the weird cult like stuff wasn't on his part. It was on this some other um I, yeah, I, I I know people that are still somewhat involved with it, so I'm trying not I'm trying to be as judicious as possible, but it was just weird. And so yeah. we'll just leave it at that. And so that for me that was a really bad experience. And um uh so f- it caused me to really start really thinking a lot about like, well, where did these pastors, these other, well, the pastors that I had, I was disappointed in. It seemed sort of like a lot of self-appointed stuff. Hmm. And so I began to think about like, well, where do pastors even drive their authority? Like who gets to say, well, this is true and that isn't. My interpretation is correct and yours isn't. This is what you're supposed to do. And I speak with authority, like, how do I, why, why should I do what you say or believe what you say? Not that I believe, not that I don't believe that there is such a thing, again, as truth, but how do I know what you're saying is true? And that caused me to, um, that whole idea had been churning even a lot earlier than that, the, se- the first seeds of it, but that was the thing that really just kicked me in the pants mm-hmm. and caused me to really think about it at a lot deeper level. And so that, that's, uh, one of the key issues for me going into the Catholic Church was authority. Like, where where is the authority coming from, and is there is there any sort of actual visible authority to speak of, or is it just this is this is the Baptist interp- interpretation, and that's fine, and this is the Presbyterian interpretation, and this is the Methodist, and etc. So, kind of along the lines of, I know what all those churches would say: all these offshoots are Baptists, or um, they would say something along the well, my authority is God and the Bible. Right. But yet they all come away with a different interpretation. That's the and problem. It, and yeah. it looks like there's zero structure in place. And if you get kind of a quack shot of a pastor, he could totally lead the entire congregation down whatever path he chose. I mean, his interpretation is final. So you're saying you wanted something greater than that. Like even you wouldn't disagree with God or the Bible's in charge, but but my pastor needs a boss too. Like, yeah. like who's overseeing this thing? Why is there so much di- apparent division from one church to the next? Yeah, is, exactly. Is that so, what I'm getting? Yeah, from yeah, yeah. So the, the most Protestants would say that this, as you said, the authority is derived from the Bible or from Scripture, or you've, you guys have heard the term sola scriptura. Uh, yeah, all you reformers out there, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> probably cheering. He knows it. He knows it. <laughs> and, and, He's and, coming back. <laughs> and, and you know what? Interestingly, that was that was the of all the solas, the you know sola, um, gracia sola, um, sola fide. Yeah, sola fide, sola deo gloria. All those. Um, the the sola scriptura was always the one that was most troubling to me because it just didn't make a lot of sense. Um, cause it, I just didn't see logically how you could do it, like without any tradition whatsoever, without any system. 
Everybody has a system. They just don't admit it. The Baptists have a yeah, system. They do. The Presbyterians have a system. Like a hermeneutic, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Of... A hermeneutic that doesn't necessarily come from Scripture itself. Interestingly, sola scriptura cannot be found in Scripture. There's no place in the Bible that says from the Bible alone. It does say from the Bible. First, uh, is it Second Timothy three sixteen? All Scripture is breathed out yes, by God yep. and is profitable for reproof, teaching and, and training in righteousness uh-huh. or whatever. But that doesn't say scripture alone. There's there's places where Paul talks about the tradition that I've passed on that needs to be passed on. So he talk, Paul talk, himself talks about tradition and he mentions that uh, in Ephesians that, or is it is it Ephesians or is it uh, Timothy? Uh, I'm sorry. My uh, scripture addresses are kind of mixed up, but... Um, he says that the church is that I think it's Timothy, first or second Timothy. The church is the the pillar and foundation of truth. He doesn't say the scripture. He says the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. So, um, but regardless, sola scriptura is not. I don't think it's a scriptural idea, and so then that causes me to say, well, where if if it's not scriptural alone, well, if if there is some sort of system hermeneutic, if you will, that's involved, which hermeneutic is the correct? I think that's what we're seeing a lot with uh, kind of more progressive Christianity is where people are questioning these hermeneutics that have been around and they're like, well, where did those come from? And so now you now now we're starting to see like an emergence of, you know, 50 years ago, you'd be hard pressed to find a, a pastor who's a woman. But now we have lots of them. Explain to the lay people what a hermeneutic is. The um what's that term i think do you know what that term means jason i'm saying we need to work in definitions for our listeners are you saying that you need to work in definitions (laughs) (laughs) it's basically a way uh a way of studying the bible and interpreting it yeah i knew that i was just seeing if you did alex Uh uh-huh okay (laughs) i think it actually comes from uh if i'm not mistaken hermes the the greek God, Herm, is that, am I, is, was it a Greek God? Hermes, yeah, who was the messenger. In, yeah, the messenger of Zeus, is that right? Yeah. And so the, basically the interpreter of Zeus. So it's um, hermeneutics. was ba- Like if you were to go to a seminary and take a hermeneutics class, it would be, well, how do, the Bible says this, how do we know what it means? So you look into the, the history and the, the, the what, what is the Greek saying? Okay. And- anyway, so so you were, you were kind of seeing that the church that you were part of was kind of like, yeah, was, this is kind of getting a little funky. Yeah. So then, is is was it at that point you were kind of like, I think I need to jump ship. Yeah, okay, yeah. There and there there were a lot of seeds that have been planted. Looking back, there were a lot of seeds that have been planted before that. But that was kind of like the event that that pushed me halfway there. So which the the church that I went to to immediately after that was the Anglican Church. So when I was in Pennsylvania doing my shoemaking apprenticeship. I went to a sort of a, a run-of-the-mill, middle-of-the-road Anglican church and then a uh, uh, an Anglo-Catholic church. So I kind of split my time. One Sunday I would go to one. The other Sunday I would go to the other. And, oh, by the way, Anglo-Catholic is, is they're still Anglican, but a lot of what they do is even closer to... Yeah, that, I that's, imagine. That's the quick, simple it's an explanation. ice latte. Yeah. So it's it's like, you know, they burn the incense and they might have the stations of the cross in the in the church okay. and kind of all that kind of stuff. Holy, you know, holy water as you walk in. Um 
And uh, so anyways, I was exploring all that and there was a lot that I liked because I, I still wasn't comfortable with Roman Catholicism, but I figured this was a way that I could sort of get closer to that idea where because in the in the Anglican Church they, there's bishops mm-hmm. there is this sort of s- system of structure and some idea of apostolic so, succession all right so this at this point in your uh, journey here you're in like kind of full exploration mode yeah maybe in search of something that had a little more structure than what you had experienced yeah. through your own church and yeah. and looking at all these different pastors kind of going there each and every way as they've feel called or led by God to do. You're looking for more of a system, more of a structure, maybe. Well, in a sense, yes. Um, I would probably nuance that, but more or less, I would say yes. And there, there, were, uh, there was a lot of theological things, biblical and theological things, too, that were troubling to me that were kind of pushing me that in that direction. So um, to me, so in the Baptist church, the idea of the um, the Lord's Supper is that it's merely symbolic. Yeah. And um, that was always troubling to me, just just purely from scripture. Um, and we do make, we make it pretty light. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I'll, and I'll totally agree with that. It, there needs. Uh, I'm just speaking on on my own personal experience. We take such a practice and make such a little deal out of a big thing. And I think it's that's more of historically that's more of a re. I think that's more of a reaction against Catholicism than it is. I think a so positive too. Theological. I call it a pendulum swing. Is what yeah, I call exactly. it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, same same thing with like we might see like a charismatic church and. And how they're speaking in tongues or working in the spirit, so the the very conservative church will will swing heavily in the opposite direction and and kind of almost take a hands off approach to the Holy Spirit because they're afraid of what that looks like. So somebody will will look at the ritual of Lord's Supper within the Catholic Church and say, Ah, you know what? Maybe maybe we shouldn't go so overboard with it. But what ultimately happens is it just kind of gets lost in the background. That was an issue, the issue of um, the Pope, like when Jesus spoke to Peter and said, you're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The, the Protestant explanation of that never made as much sense to Doesn't me as, okay. as the the, uh, the Catholic understanding of that. It's funny hearing you say that, but me growing up as a, as a Catholic, hearing that, and then coming to a, a, a Baptist church, I guess you can say, it made more sense to me the Baptist way. I just thought it was an interesting oh, okay. comparison. Okay. Well, the, and the relationship between faith and works, it was net to me. Uh, the more I read the New Testament, particularly like Romans, the quote unquote reformed understanding to me just seemed sort of two dimensional, mm-hmm. and it wasn't nuanced enough because there were there were just a lot of things that Paul, even Paul himself said that to me just didn't fit within that framework, and so I. It just was to me. It was kind of uncomfortable. So, in in an odd sort of way, scripture itself was part of what pushed me into yeah. the in the in the Catholic direction. And then church history. I, t- I had a, I, I was I, I was taking some seminary classes at Southern uh, Baptist Theological Seminary. One of them was a church history class, and mm-hmm. uh, it was from the new from the first century till the Reformation. And 
It was a great professor, and he was very generous towards the whole Catholic history of the church. Um, he, he was still convictionally Baptist, but he wasn't referring to all these people as heretics. Gotcha. Um, and that really opened up my eyes. Like, and 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 I, it always was the, the 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 church fathers to me. That was always kind of an uncomfortable area of like, wait a minute, how come for so long? I can even remember in my teen years when I was first really kind of awakening to the idea of a relationship with Christ. I remember reading just a little bit about the church fathers and having this kind of discomfort. Like, why did all all these church fathers? I just I just kind of had this innate sense that they were closer to Catholic. Why and why was that? And so when I actually took this church history class and was reading a little more deeply about the history of the church, that to me was just huge problem in the Protestant church. Mm-hmm. Just this gaping, gaping, gaping hole. And I'm trying I, I I realize I'm not sounding very diplomatic, but um to me that was just a huge hole. We never talk in, in the evangelical or the Protestant church, we never would talk about what was going on in that period of the church or spoke of any of very few of those people as heroes, if you will, or examples to be emulated. Maybe you might hear the occasional reference to Augustine um, or maybe Athanasius and his defense of the Trinity and those kinds of things. It was just a sort of gaping hole. And to, and I, I kind of explained it this way to somebody before that. It was kind of like if, if, uh, if your mom, let's say you grew up with your mom and apart from your dad and let's say they got divorced or whatever happened or they were never married. So you never really knew your dad. And so your mom, because she had had some bad experiences, told you all these stories about your dad and your dad's family and how bad they were. And then as you get older, you start to learn a little bit, a little bit more about that and realize that it's a little bit more nuanced and it's part of who you are, this connection of who your dad was and who your dad's family is. It's part of who you are and you want to learn about that history. And maybe the reason that your mom was so reactionary against it was because she herself had some bad experiences, but it wasn't maybe so objective. And so I don't know if that's the best analogy, but for me, it was kind of like, wait a minute, this is part of my history. Even if I don't become Catholic, this yeah. is part of my history. So I want to learn what they taught and believed. And to me, the more I did that, the more it was like, I, I was just coming up with this uncomfortable conclusion that the church for 1500 years was Roman Catholic. Yeah. And so that the, the, the Protestant Reformation, the question started to form in my mind, maybe the, the Protestant Reformation, which was my starting place, is really an aberration and maybe the default position should be Roman Catholic. There, I want to ask you this question because I, I, I read this today and when Martin Luther was pinning his 95 theses or when he was penning it and writing it, he wasn't thinking about, I'm going to start this huge movement and just totally break off into this Protestant offshoot. He was like, here's some things that I'm not seeing lining up with what Catholics are doing right now that's lining up with the Bible currently. So I guess it was kind of more of like a, hey, church, Catholic church, like these are some things that are not congruent with scripture. And I, don't, and I, and the, the way the history teacher was explaining it on the, I know my, my source is YouTube, so I don't know if that's the best <laughs> source, but he was saying essentially like, 
Martin Luther was not expecting to start this this giant reformation. He was just saying, here's some things that I don't necessarily see congruent at the churches, uh, especially with indulgences. And some things that I'm not seeing uh, lining up with Scripture, not that I want to tear down the whole system. That's I, yeah. That's my understanding. That would be my yeah. understanding. I think when I think anytime we approach church history, you have to do it from a position of humility, and realize that we're sweeping hundreds of years and categorizing them into periods and sweeping it under a nice little heading that say. Uh, from from 300 to 500, the church did this. And we read that statement, and we're like, well, the church did that in 200 years. But we don't give room to say, God moved and did something in those 200 years that we really can't communicate from a history class. And I, to me, like, I think you have, to, you have to leave some space in there. You have to leave some humility in there to, to, uh, to realize that maybe, maybe God's bigger than we can box them into and let's give a little bit of respect for how the church formed even in those early years because that's still that's still Christ's bride <laughs> that he's still working through and and using even though we can sweep it under this nice little heading and I mean called the dark ages or, yeah. or what have you and, I, you and, know I, what I'm and I do want to point this out in the in the, the the history lesson that I got on the Reformation before that the the person that was teaching it did say something that was incredibly profound to me. Like, you know, we come from this, we come from, you know, these Protestant backgrounds and we're like, Oh man, Luther and Calvin, those are our dudes. But before those dudes were doing their work for God, the Catholic church was still serving the least of these. They were still giving alms to the poor because there weren't any government. Um, there weren't any government programs at that time. And literally the only, uh, kind of welfare that was provided back then was the church. Let's let's go ahead and say it like what Catholic means. It's the universal church of Christ. Mm-hmm. And when, when the church started right after Jesus departed, it was the one and only Catholic church. That's where we all get our roots from. Now, there's there's branches off from there. I know I'm getting into a, a little church history lesson here, but we all founded as one church, and it was the Catholic church, mm-hmm. the universal church of Christ. Absolutely. So we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we're, we, this conversation is very, very interesting, but I want to give our listeners a little break. So okay. we got a commercial for them. Here we go. All right. Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas, Jason! Ho, 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 ho! Whoa, Santa. Hey, buddy. You're being awfully nice for somebody who's just been kidnapped. That's right, everybody. We kidnapped Santa. And using air quotes, he's agreed to... Help out our podcast a little bit. And what I mean by that is if you leave us a five-star review on iTunes and then you send us an email or a Facebook message letting us know that you did, we will send you special instructions for Skyping Santa. So if you've got some little ones, all seriousness here, Alex does a pretty rad Santa. Like he's got the costume and everything. And we're going to set up a little, what, a little Santa's workshop. Santa's coming to our little podcast studio down here in Alex's basement, and you get a chance to have your kids Skype Santa just in time for the holidays. All you have to do is leave us a review, and your kids can talk to Santa. Or if you don't have kids, you want to talk to Santa, that's cool. Santa's here. Even if you have already left us feedback, again, just Facebook message us or send us an email 
and let us know. We'll send you those instructions, and we're going to start taking Skype calls. Here's a little jingle to take us back. So, Tim, if if somebody wrote on their Christmas list that they wanted some Satorial boots and they wanted Santa to bring them, where could they go to? Where could Santa go to buy them? Well, you you could get them online on our website, but the probably the best thing is just to come into the shoe shop. And I'm actually just getting ready to make up. I realize this is kind of late, but to uh, have a gift certificate printed. So awesome. Because we couldn't, we couldn't actually finish a pair by Christmas if you ordered them right now. But um, we, we, that, thus the the gift certificate. Maybe, uh, maybe they'll end up in somebody's uh, Easter basket. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, guys, we're back here with Tim Goodrich. Uh, we like we got into some awesome discussion topics uh, in the last part of the episode. We got into some church history. We got into a little bit of uh, differing doctrinal points uh, between Catholics and uh, Protestants. We got we heard a lot of Tim's story, which we'll probably finish that up here. Um, but what do we got? What do we got next, Jason? What do, what's on our our schedule next? Um, coming up show wise. Yeah, coming up show. Holy cow! I don't like to tip my hat to that in case somebody cancels. The Flint Roller Derby girls are going to come on. That's one. Uh, my buddy Jason Katarski is going to come on. He's a former pastor and a board game inventor, and Ooh. just an awesome guy with some awesome stories. The Inglorious Pastors. Nice. Are are on Those schedule? Those guys are hilarious. Yes, we've been working with them. I've been going back and forth, talking to them, uh, getting them to come on the show, and we got you know some dates to work out. But they're going to come on eventually, uh, hopefully here pretty soon. And then also, uh, the girls from the Free Sex Podcast are going to come on. And why are you laughing? You're giggling. I, I you can't am, even I'm, say I'm sex gig- without giggling, yeah. Alex. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm giggling because I just know that that's just going to be a funny episode. It's going to be one of those topics. I don't know. Is it still pretty awkward to talk about sex in the Catholic Church too? Like as much awkward as uh, Protestants? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I would say um, that you had no idea we know, were going to ask you I about sex. I don't know if I'm the best person to ask. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. My awful toughness I, is awkward. <laughs> All right, so across the bur- oh, bird, across the bird, across, across the, the bird. board, Christians are just really awkward at talking about sex. So yeah. hopefully we can break some of that awkwardness and we can have some great conversation. But we are in the middle of a great conversation right now, Jason. And I want to get into some of maybe uh, some of uh, some more doctrinal differences. But I also want to remind our listeners that we're not here to debate. You're like we're not going yeah. to we're not going to push. We're not going to try and convert Tim back. No, that's not why we're here. And Tim's not trying to convert us to Catholicism either. The whole the whole way we operate our podcast is, if you especially if you're listening for the first time, we like to have guests on. We love having guests on, but we like to hear their story or their faith journey. And the reason we like to do that is because we get stuck in our little insular bubbles of what church and what, club churches. and what God means to us. And we totally lose sight of the fact that God's working in some tremendous and quite different ways. We have, to a fault, we, we tend to box them in. So uh, we love having guests like Tim on uh, to uh, kind of share their story, explain their journey, and to show us that God is a lot bigger than we give him credit for. Mm. And I just want to reinforce that. We're, we're not here to debate. 
Uh, even though we'll talk about some doctrinal differences, we're not here to change anybody's mind. The whole goal is to show people that God is much bigger than you originally thought. So we hope when you're listening, you're listening with an open mind. Hopefully, you're not uh, responding in your true uh, uh, conservative mindset <laughs> when you're listening. Oh, he's wrong about that. Clearly, he hasn't read blah, 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 scripture. Uh, or I ask you to put that on hold for a moment and just honestly listen. That's uh, something that's kind of lost on our culture. Can, can I jump in? Yeah, yeah absolutely. That, absolutely. I, um, I just want to say, too, that I, being an, a, a newer Catholic, I can have a tendency to be pretty zealous to let people see the things that I saw or try to get them to see the things that I saw. And so, um, and sometimes that can come across as a bit self-righteous. And so I, even talking about how I got here and some of the bad experiences I had and so forth, I'm, I'm fully aware that there are several ways in which I, in all the things that I was a part of and did and taught and believed, there were several pitfalls. And so I wasn't without, um, sin and, error in that whole thing and so um and and i also just want to make it clear as well that i I fully understand that not in the whole catholic thing i um not everybody comes to the same conclusions i'm convinced that if you were if if protestants were to understand what catholics actually do believe about things for example like mary or the eucharist if 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 they were to read it from what if if they were to read a book actually by a Catholic and not by a Protestant that thinks they know what the Catholics believe, <laughs> yeah. they would at least that's a good point. That is, they an would awesome they would point. under they would come to the conclusion I think that at least there's a good solid argument for what they're they're um what they teach and believe even if they themselves are not convinced of the argument. So. Um, and, and vice versa. I, I, I fully realize that there's arguments against the things that I believe that are well-reasoned arguments. Ultimately, I fell, I fell down on the side of, um, the Catholic position on these things, but, um, I fully, uh, uh realize that God and Christ is being experienced in a, uh, broad array of church traditions and you name it. Yeah. So let's go into some of the doctrinal. I think that's a good segue to kind of go into some of maybe the doctrinal differences between between our two groups. And I and I hate calling them two groups because I feel like essentially, I mean, many Protestants and I I mean I feel like many Protestants I've even heard them say are Catholic brother and brothers and sisters that we still believe we all still believe in this Christ. And even one of the things that we have in common is the Trinity. We both believe that we believe in a God that's one but also exists as in three persons, three in one, one in three, uh, Father, the God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. That's something I remember learning in my catechism classes. And I think that's, that's something that we can find common ground on and say, hey, we may believe differently on these other things, but this is the one thing that we do have in common. The most essential Christian doctrines, I would argue, are shared between Protestant and Catholic. Man, Jesus is still important. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and that's one of the things I'm like, it, it it breaks my heart to hear like, 
the Catholics or I was at this Catholic service and it was so weird. It's like, it's going to be weird. It's like going to your cousin's house and not knowing like their traditions and their, their nuances, but like they still are preaching a God and they're still preaching Jesus. They're still preaching salvation through him. So suck it up. You're at your cousin's house. It's okay. <laughs> well, you know, an explanation I heard about that, that I thought was kind of, uh, that made sense to me. Uh, several years ago, I read, I think it was a magazine article, and it, um, there was a quote from, I think the guy was Will Williman. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing his name properly, but, um, his analogy was baseball. If you take somebody to a baseball game, you're not expecting the organizers of Major League Baseball to change the terminology or to get the players to dress just like the people that are coming, mm. coming to, the event, if you want somebody to become interested in baseball, there's a certain language that you, they need to understand. There's a certain history and tradition about and, and the rules of baseball. And um, certainly Major League Baseball wants to attract people there, but they're not changing. They're arguably not really changing things in order to get people to to be attracted to it based if you want to learn baseball you got to learn base if you want to be a fan of baseball you need to learn about baseball so you could argue and say churches that have a little bit more of a um, historical rooting like the anglican church or the catholic church or whatever that there's a certain it, it should be normal we should expect that there's going to be a certain amount of cultural distance if you will that there's there's going to be some strange things that we're going to have to learn about and why why does why does the priest do this or why does he wear that or why does he say this particular thing? So one of the things that we do disagree on probably but again I'm I don't know very much about the catholic position because all I've read is stuff online you you try and find good websites obviously but sometimes they're not very When was the last time you went to a catholic church Alex? Um, Can I ask that? Is probably I want to say junior high, late elementary school. Okay, so sixth or seventh grade was probably the last time I was. I will there. humbly submit I've only been to a Catholic church for two funerals. Two funerals. I was there. Two, f- maybe three. I was. I was at a. This is really weird. I was at a Catholic, uh, Catholic slash Protestant wedding ceremony, where the the girl. Uh, the bride, she was Protestant, and this, this wasn't the couple that made you wear the biker vest, was it? No, that okay. was that was something different. <laughs> that was something different. And the the husband was grew up Catholic, so they they like teamed up together and they both did the ceremony, which was interesting because they meshed it very well. But it was like, again, your two cousins are coming together. They're ones from the north, ones from the south. There's yeah. going to be differences. But it, again, it was very interesting. But one of the differences, and and maybe it's not a, as big of a difference as I think it is, is how Protestants and Catholics view Mary. Coming from a Protestant side of things, I think we make too little of Mary. I think I think we're just kind of like, and that was Jesus's mother, da 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 da, and we just kind of skip over Luke one, where it, like that whole story about Mary and her magnificent in Luke one, and we just kind of glance over that. But what is your view of Mary, especially former Protestant? Catholic now because because some Catholics and I and I know we talked about this a little bit off air Tim about some and maybe I'm wrong view her as co-mediator with Christ is that something that's held by most Catholics no Catholics kind of well let me 
go back to one your an, another thing you just said and then come back to that the comediatrix thing um the for me the um one of the eye-opening things was when i took a church history class the church history class i referenced at mm-hmm. southern seminary the professor told us and the book said that because um there was this idea of the the, the term theotokos which is, which means god bear or um I guess yeah, God bearer. That the term that is used of Mary, um, that meaning mother of, which basically becomes mother of God. You've heard the term that Mary, you know, Catholics refer to Mary as the mother of God, and um, of course, for me that was a very uncomfortable term. And the professor said, theologically, if you don't believe that Mary's the mother of God, then you're you're venturing into heresy. Because there's no part of Christ that is not God. He is, as we, most of us mm-hmm. evangelicals have learned, that he's fully God. Yeah. So she's mother. Catholics don't believe that she's the mother of the entire Trinity. They just believe that she is the mother of Jesus who is fully divine and therefore she is um, the mother of God. So that to hear my Baptist professor say that was like, Oh my word! I can't. I can't believe that. Do you think that that he's saying that in ties to the fact that for one of the key the key doctrines, I think for any person who claims Christ to be their savior and to be divine, like he has, he had to be born of a virgin with no sin in order for him to make the claims that he made. Is that kind of no? I'm all. I'm all. I'm, okay. At this point, all I'm saying. I mean, that's that's a different avenue. But but all I'm saying right now is that Mary Mary was Jesus's mother. Right. Jesus was God. Yes. Right? So therefore, Mary is the mother of God. Yes. That doesn't mean that she's the mother of God the Father, but she is the mother of God the Son, which still makes her the mother of God. So, but back back to your position. So for me, that really got the, that was another thing that was like, wait a minute, what, what is this thing? So, um, co-mediatrix, and I, and by no means am I, uh, a theological expert on all things Catholic. As I understand it, all that's being referred to when um, Catholics say that Mary is the co-mediator, co-mediatrix, is that she was a partaker in the work of Christ in that um, it's not like, well, they're not saying that our our salvation is partly from Christ and partly from Mary. What they're saying is that it's all of Christ and all of Christ. The the work that Mary did in saying yes to what God asked of her was a very significant part of salvation history, a deeply significant part. Absolutely, I'm 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 lockstep with you, one hundred percent. Like. When, when, especially in the church world, and we we talk about these like heroes of the faith, and we talk about you know all the all the boys want to be like David, or they want to be like Abraham, or or some of those guys. But then when you talk about for the girls, they're like, uh, we want to be like Esther or Ruth, and everybody completely glances over Mary as this this young woman who was obedient to God, and said, I'll 
you want me to do this this great thing all right let's do it even though it's gonna eventually you know get me accused of being a whore and gonna cause me a lot of grief down the road like i'll do this that I'm, i'm starting to get comfortable by calling mary my mother and it's not again it's not saying that mary is divine herself that mary um is like another god it's uh merely saying if in a sense that she's she's the the um the best example of what it means to be a Christian, to say yes to God, to obey God, to uh, to and to bring forth Christ to the world, and I, I'm and now I'm getting to a point where on a fairly regularly ba- a regular basis I pray the Rosary, and most of it is just direct out of Scripture. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, God, pray for us sinners sinners now now and in the the hour hour of our death. death. Amen. Exactly. I used to get candy when I said that right. (laughs) (laughs) You want a Hershey kiss, Alex? Please. (laughs) So. Like Pavlov. um, Ooh. And and without, I won't go down this rabbit hole, but there's a whole rationale as well for the idea of praying to Mary and other saints. Um, I'm comfortable making a request of Mary to bring uh, the request to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And um, so... See, I'm glad we're taking the time to let you explain this and your reasoning. Because I think, I think most people, their natural reaction was, they probably didn't hear anything you just said. All they heard was Mother Mary at the end of it. <laughs> and said, yep, Catholic. Hmm. Like, <laughs> I can't believe I still remember it. <laughs> that was pretty impressive. That was like, <laughs> boom, there for Alex. Uh, let's, let's keep going because I'm, I'm sure we can talk about lots of these, but our episodes are already getting kind of long. So I want to get into more of these. Um, one I was always interested with and the one that made me the most comf- uncomfortable when I was a Christian was the confession. Uh, do you do confession, Tim? Do you go in and say, forgive me, father, for I have sinned. It has been, man, I'd, I'd walk yeah. in there and I'd be like, I remember when I was a little kid and I walk in there and I, He'd be like, Tell, or like, how long has it been since your last confession? And it's, you know, he, ha- I have something to say. He has something to say back to me. Then I answer. It's very, it's very, I don't want, it's not scripted, but it's, it's, it's what you do. It's what you say. And he'd be like, you know, when was the last time you confessed? And I'd be like, uh, I, and I'm like a little kid. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> and he'd go, okay. Well, tell me, tell me your sins, my son. <laughs> my, like, go to sin was always like, uh, my mom told me to brush my teeth, <laughs> and I didn't. And he he was like, "So you you didn't obey your parents?" And I'm and he's like, and I'm like, "Yeah." He's like, "All right, well, you know that's important, right? That's something that God wants you to do." I'm like, "Yeah, I just didn't." And he's like, "All right, so say five Hail Marys and two Our Fathers." And uh, see, growing up in the Baptist church, we just would have waited for the fifteenth course of Just as I Am. <laughs> And one of us would have been, somebody just walk up there and end it. So we would just walk up there and said like pretty much the same thing. My mom told me to brush my teeth. Okay, say the sinner's prayer. <laughs> well, to, to answer your question, the answer is yes. And I'll, I'll say this, that the first, so before I was uh, received into the Catholic Church, um, I had to go to confession 
And did you confess your Protestantism? Me so much. Did you say on Facebook there's a no. picture of me and Mark Driscoll? <laughs> <laughs> and they were all like, "Who? <laughs> Mark? Who? The the, the uh, that scared me." And I, I was like, man, I'm going to have to say some things that I'm really sort of embarrassed of. But the priest that I confessed to was great. I mean, there's a lot of great priests that, and, uh, that I'm fam- familiar with in this area. But um, he probably had your Facebook this guy was a good guy. He's no longer in the area. He was one of the Augustinian priests, but he, um, he didn't hammer me too bad. Um, so the ants, but anyway, so I, I have gone to confession and I do somewhat regularly is is your question like why would i maybe why would i do that or why would no, I, no, I was just i was i was just curious i guess i want our listeners to hear your your side of your side of the things because yeah i for me personally i would say and i i even thought this as a little kid so maybe yeah. i was doomed from the start to yeah. be a protestant why would i tell this guy my sins when i can just tell God the Father, and I know that that kind of may come off as very arrogant, right, right? Right. So I just I just wanted to hear your side of things, right? So I think what would I say about it? One, in the earliest Christian centuries, as I understand it, the practice was if you if if you committed at least committed mortal sin, uh. I.e. heavier sins like adultery or murder, murder or something like that. Um, that in order to be received back into communion and in the good graces of the church, they would go before the whole church and confess their sins. And then at some point, it the the church deemed it wise to sort of narrow that down to a particular person. Uh, that the leaders of the church, not the entire congregation. And um, there was this growing understanding that the priest himself acting in the place of Christ has the power to forgive sins. And part of this, they would point to when Jesus says to Peter, whose ever sins you forgive, they will be forgiven. In my experience, um, so uh, there's probably other theological issues um, that I could kind of tease out. If, if I can maybe just chime in yeah, real yeah, quick. Yeah. I think we don't confess enough as, as Protestants. And I think that's something that we have we have a problem with with our team. <laughs> I don't want to call it a team. But um, <laughs> the fact that we sometimes do kind of say, well, I'm not going to tell this priest my sins i'm i can just tell god like i don't i don't need him to tell but i do think there's something healthy and good about confessing our sins to one another and saying like i remember before i was married i confessed all my deep dark sins to my wife to be and then stuff that i had never told anybody else and i just remember how freeing that was to be able to confess and say this is what i've done now now i'm out on the table and mm-hmm. this is this is all of me. What you're get, what you're seeing is what you're getting now. And I think, to a certain degree, people carry their baggage around with them, exactly. and it just weighs them down. So to to for for me for a Catholic to say, well, like I weekly go to confession and I confess my sins to somebody that I trust, to somebody that will listen to me, 
is maybe freeing. I don't know. Yeah, how do you feel well, after it's also, that? Here's the you feel thing. good? You know, I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll, I'll tell you my experience, which I was, I was not expecting. But every time, I, I think I can say every time I have gone to confession, and you know what? Maybe I don't take it seriously enough because I'm, I, I don't find myself confessing like, oh, I was, you know, I said something about this person behind their back, those kinds of things, yeah. um, which I'm sure is true from time to time. Um, but the bigger ones, so like the mortal sins, so um, which for me would be masturbation sometimes. <laughs> I don't know if I can say that, but no, and you're on it. your pa- podcast. But We're having I'm a, a sex I'm a, episode. I'm a in single a guy. Weeks. It's okay. <laughs> and I, you know, um, that's one that I uh, battle with from time to time. And so I, I, it's a kind of intimidating to go before a priest and say that I masturbated. And, uh, and yet I'll say this, that when the, when the priest offers the act of actually forgiving your sins, he raises his hand and absolves you of your sins. And I forget what he actually says. It's kind of this visual representation. Um, it's not just visual rep. It's in in the understanding your sins are actually through the priest. Christ is actually forgiving your sins at that moment. And I can say that every time I've done it, I can actually feel a power coming out from the priest's hands. Hmm. I've never heard anybody else say that. So I might just be like off in, you know, lunatic land. Um, you think, and like, I suppose it could be maybe, maybe I'm just there's something psychological that I'm sort of importing into what's happening, but I'm I don't think it is. Every every time yeah. it happens, he raises his hand, and I'm like, whoa! It's almost like I I can tangibly feel it, and it's like I, I actually feel like I'm being forgiven. Christ is actually forgiving me of my sins, and there's this power that's being. Do you think somehow, that that it's through? Christ and his work on the cross that he's that that forgiveness is being achieved or do you think it's like an actual power of the priest or I'm I'm not sure to be honest I'm trying to I'm trying to cross your lines I'm trying to make you less Catholic Tim (laughs) I'm just kidding I think I think the Christ has uh, Christ has forgiven my sins but in some sort of way it be is made new every time that I confess it as I confess my sins, I'm actually being forgiven by Christ at that moment, even though, in a sense, my sins were forgiven when Jesus died yeah. on the cross, if that makes any sense. That's interesting. By the That's way, the next one I want to get into is the Eucharist. Well, like, if, so if I can chime in, um, I just found in James, I was reminded of this text in James, it says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So, like... James is writing to Christians, but he's still saying you need to confess your sins to one another. So yeah. I, I, I don't know. I just thought that was interesting just to kind of try and make a connection for our Protestant brothers. Well, you know, and that's in the context, <laughs> too. He says, have the elders of the church yeah. come before you. Yeah. In verse 14, he says, is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Mm. So um, there seems to be some connection to the elder there. Uh, I think it's cool just hearing your experience. Mm-hmm. So what about the... Do we have time for more, Alex? Yeah, let's do one more. So what about 
the Eucharist are for our Protestant friends, the Lord's Supper. And now, I, can I say something? I know I've said that a few times now, so yeah. please edit out all the times I've said, can I say something? Can I just chime in? Can I just butt in real quick? Just take those out. Anyway, I think for one for one thing, I think when we do do the Lord's Supper, I think we do a great job. I think there's there's a time for, when, for, for us to reflect uh, whoever's usually preaching that day will get up they'll talk about the history behind it why we do it they give us time to confess our sins to god and to and to basically make ourselves right i think we do a great job of when we do do it we do a great job of presenting it and t- the importance of it we just do it not frequently enough yeah my preference and i, I would i would I do voiced, it every week if uh, yes, we could absolutely i voice this opinion all the time i think i think the eucharist or the Lord's Supper, as as we call it, because the first time I heard the term Eucharist, I was like, "Euchre is a card game." <laughs> like that was the first thing I thought of. Like, what is this Eucharist? We called it communion. I remember my first communion. I got pictures. Maybe I can get the pictures. Oh my goodness! I can get the pictures from my mom's house, and we can put them up. No, the, the so the first time that I, well, one of my trips to a Catholic church was at a funeral, and they did the Eucharist. And I'm a visitor, and I have no idea the ritual or what's going on or any of it. And at this time, I had, I mean, blue hair. Not even a little blue. I mean, blue punk rock hair. And it's at a funeral, so all eyes, when I walk in the door of this place, are just, like, locked on me. He's the heathen. And so we go to take the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, and my buddy's like, well, do you do this at your church? I was like, yeah, all the time. Like, I know what's going on. And so I get in line with everybody else. It was it was really awkward. I will say this. The, a- the priest wanted to put the cracker, like, directly in my mouth. And I, like, took it from him. <laughs> like, I was probably so, like, so rude. It was really bad. But afterward, my buddy told me, because it was his grandfather who passed away. He's like, dude... Everybody was laughing so hard at you. You brought so much like joy to that funeral out of your own stupidity. So I guess like I was there unintentionally for the comic relief. I remember my mom wouldn't let me drink out of the cup because she's like, I don't want you to get sick, buddy. Everybody drinks out of that cup. And I'm like, okay. So when I, so when I went to Baptist church, it was like, oh, we all get our own little cups. This is yeah. fun. So anyway, that, those are my, that's my story. Sorry. Tim, explain, please proceed. Oh well, let me just say one of my uh, one of the several threads into the church was that I when I was at um, the Baptist church that I was on staff with, I remember there were times when because we had the um, communion once a month, yeah, and so there were at least a couple of times where I was in charge of presiding over it, I guess, and I just felt so uncomfortable, like. I, I don't know why, but I just felt like there. I didn't. I didn't feel like I had the authority to do that. Or yeah. I, didn't, I didn't feel it. I, it just seemed to me out of place, and so, um, and certainly within the Catholic Church, that's the understanding that you can't just have. Not just any Christ, Christian can decide to. You can't just go buy bread and grape juice and then have communion as a regular believer that there's something that happens when um the the priest there's there's a there's a power again that through christ as the as the priest um presides over the eucharist and 
during the prayer of consecration, that's when it becomes the body and blood of Christ. The transubstantiation. Exactly. (laughs) The actual body and blood of Christ. And so that, that would be one where the Catholic Church actually... They take when Jesus said, "This is my body." That's mm-hmm. a, that's a place where the Catholic Church says he meant, bo- he meant yeah. this is my body. Mm-hmm. And there's you could make arguments against that, I suppose. But whether you agree or disagree, that's what the Catholic Church believes that this is the body and blood of Christ. So I grew up. Well, I spent a lot of time in the Church of Christ, which did take communion every single Sunday. And they made for us like if you had to miss a Sunday, they made these like a little emergency communion. <laughs> like, that reminds me of like, like the emergency was, baptism kit in the Simpsons that the Flanders yeah. had. So I mean, it was a little <laughs> cup with a, a little bit of grape juice and a little cracker, and it was like in this like um, like this little like you know like the cheese and crackers things you like can peel open. It was like yeah. in one of those like oh my god. So, and what, like, was it, what was it for? If you had to miss church on a Sunday, you oh, could wow. still partake in uh, communion by yourself and you're on Amazon <laughs> I was wondering if the Catholic Church had anything like that um no I, I don't think I would so. imagine not but I just there, there is there is a way for for cath for, for people that can't make like it to shut-ins. church yeah they, that people that will take the somebody will take yeah, it to them. yeah like out of all the like different doctrines like this might be the one that fascinates me the most and it might be because in our in our current situation, um, we make so little of of it. So I don't know from a Catholic's perspective. I know we just talked about transubstantiation. Like, what does it what does it mean for you at participating in communion from somebody who used to be uh, work at a church and just not feel right about you know administering. Uh, this practice to somebody who now participates it from a, like a from a Catholic perspective. What does it What does it mean to you? It's it's in the again in the Catholic understanding, the Eucharist is the center of the life of the Church. Um, it's not the homily. And that's not to say that the homily or the or the sermon in, in Protestant nomenclature um, is unimportant, but still. Without the Eucharist, you don't have the church, and so. Um, so you put a heavy emphasis. Yeah, on it's it. very heavy, and so it's and you're and supposed confession. to take it very seriously. Like if, for example, if 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 you've committed mortal sin, you're not supposed to partake of the Eucharist unless you've um, gone to confession. Yeah, I was gonna. I was just about I, to I ask imagine, that same question. Yeah, like, I don't know how faithful most Catholics are to that. We got some on. Uh, Team Protestant, right? <laughs> where where they it's it's just kind of like going through the motions. Like we oh. we take here's the here's the here's the bread, here's the wine, and it's just kind of like something that you do on Sundays instead of actually heeding Paul's warning. Like make sure you confess your sin first before you partake, because some of you have have gotten sick, or some people have even died even because died, they've, yeah. they've abused uh, the Lord's Supper. And to me, I think what's missed and and I, like what I miss about it. Even the fact, you know, okay, somebody else is administering this, like, they're giving you the the juice and the cracker, if you will. Like, that's what we reduce it to. But something is lost on that from, from, from my perspective when we don't have that. And that's, like, humbly submitting 
to Christ through that and what he did for you. And it's, to me, it's the little nuances that, that are totally lost in, in our Protestant world. Okay, this, this priest just handed me a cracker and a, and a cup, and he made me drink it. Like, he put his hand up and tipped it in. And I, I there's this total, um, this total sense that I'm not doing anything in this practice. It's all being done for me. The crackers being placed in my mouth. The the cup is being placed in my mouth. And and to me that's that reminder of Christ did this for you. Died on the cross for you for your sins and you did nothing. Just like this is a, such a powerful reminder of right here in this moment you're doing nothing. It's all happening to you and for you and at the hands of somebody else. And and to me, like, okay, take your cracker and, and dip it. Like, all right, that that works. That's also the way Jesus uh, signaled uh, out Judas. But <laughs> we'll partake in it that way, I guess, you know? Like, yeah, I guess uh, maybe it's me trying to over-spiritualize it from, from a sense where we are. I feel like we don't experience it enough, but just uh, that moment where you're reminded that something bigger happened mm. and it's not just because you are in this space and thinking about something bigger. No, you're, you're visually being reminded by everything that's going on that no, something real happened yeah. bigger. Christ's body was broken for you. Yes. And this is the wine or the juice is his shed blood. Well, why did his blood have to be shed? Yeah. And that I, should cause us to, to really consider and think, why am I doing this? I think for the Protestant, the hang-up is the transubstantiation, and we totally kill the entire practice in the process. Like everything is lost because we disagree on on one point. That's just kind of silly, isn't it? <laughs> I just I don't know. Like uh, so many times, I feel like I'm leaving church, and it's like, okay, I I heard the preacher speak. We sang the songs, and I know the songs, and I heard the band play, and the band was really great. But it still feels like I'm missing something. And I'm sure Catholics walk away from church from time to time and say, like, okay, I know I just went through all the motions, but I still feel like I'm missing something. Well, if, I mean, just if there's, if I have a critique of the Catholic church, it would be that it's, uh, good. Preaching is rare in the yeah, Catholic okay. Church. It's it's actually kind of rare even in the Protestant Church, yeah. but it's even rarer in the Catholic Church. Yeah, part of that is because the emphasis is more on the Eucharist. I think that's part of the emphasis, um, and the way preaching is understood is is a little bit different. But um, so that would be a critique of the Catholic Church, and uh, yet the opposite critique, as you said, could be made in Protestant. Um, churches what was the question what what i i i'm going down a rabbit trail and i don't even know what what I, does the eucharist mean to you oh i've heard it explained like this i don't know if this is the official catholic teaching but i've heard it explained like that in the same way that um so so marriage is seen as a sacrament in the mm-hmm. catholic church too so when a husband and a wife are married they're on the day of their marriage they're sacra- sacramentally bound together and join into one flesh, 
And when they uh, partake in sexual relations, it's actually the experience, it's, it's re-experiencing the sacramental nature of the marriage on a continuous basis. It's in, in a very real, literal way, they're participating physically in that marriage. Um, and it's something that in a good marriage, the husband and the wife long to participate in. And so there's a sort of a parallel with the Eucharist that um, through our baptism, we are united with Christ. And yeah, and through the Eucharist, we reparticipate um, regularly with that with desire. I don't know if that if that's a good answer, but yeah, <laughs> you just took the Lord's Supper and sex and somehow connected them. <laughs> well, <laughs> my mind's a little bit blown right now. That's, but I, I, I think that's there's there's um, that's that's by. By design, I think, by God, that there's there's deep connections between the marriage relationship and our relationship with Christ. You know, Jesus um, in Ephesians, Paul says, "Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church." Well, wait a second, Protestants. He just he, he quoted the Bible. He quoted something that we believe. <gasps> it's okay. We're gonna make it through this. I know. Like, <laughs> I'm so I'm being I know, so arrogant and stupid. I right know. Now. I know. We have some listeners who are are so used to black and white theology and are raised with it and they just want us to refute some of the things you're saying so bad and I'm not doing it intentionally because I want people to explore. <laughs> I want people to find people like yourself and ask them personally and not reduce everything to a set of lists, you know, a list of this is what I believe and this is what I don't believe and it must fit in one of these categories and if it doesn't then it doesn't exist or it's not real. Like, uh, no, I want you to like search out somebody, including your pastor, like, like ask these questions, have these discussions. It's not going to hurt you to revisit a doctrine that you've, that you've been decided on for, for forever. It's okay to revisit those and take a look at them and ask some honest and hard questions and figure out what you believe why you do things what does it mean to you what are you experiencing through it what's going on in your mind when it's happening what does confession look like for you when you take the lord's supper what does that mean like ask these questions that would be my if if i would if i would have my way with what happened, what, the way that people walk away from hearing this, um, it would be simply that. If you believe strongly in something, examine the under, underpinning reasons why you believe in those things. And if you come out believing the same thing, that's great. But um, I think too, there's too many people, whether it could be in religious issues, but you know, biblical issues, it could be, um, political issues or any number of other areas where people just they have a default position and it's not really examined and they believe it dogmatically and that's sort of to me that's sort of frustrating if i'm in a conversation with somebody like that and they just know that they're right but they don't really have even for their own explanation solid reasoning behind what they believe and so 
I don't know. I, I, yeah. I, I, I'm just a firm believer that you should examine, believe something strongly great. I think that's a good thing, but examine why it is that you believe what you believe. Yeah. What you're asking people to do is to make their faith or their belief system their own. And that's something that I could honestly say when I was growing up Catholic, Catholic doctrine and the catechisms, that wasn't my thing. It was just something that I was almost expected to do because that was part of my family and that was part of like the culture that I grew up in. And so when I finally heard the gospel and started seeking Jesus for myself, I immediately, my faith became my own. And statistically, that's going to affect my life for a longer period of time instead of if I just went through the motions. You know what I mean? So I think if anybody, regardless of what kind of church you go to, if you're just going through the motions it's time to ask yourself some extremely hard questions. Yeah, absolutely. Of why and what. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like start asking those hard questions because just going through the motions isn't good for you. It isn't good for anybody. Yeah, absolutely. And a good place to start is with Jesus. <laughs> start there and uh, see where that goes. Absolutely. Tim, do you have any uh, any closing thoughts or um Let's say somebody was like really curious what you do here at this at your shop here. Is there like a you guys have an Instagram page or a Facebook page that people can see? Because I'm looking around this room, and I, I'm I'm going back to your boots, but I'm extremely intrigued, and I'm 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 a craftsman myself, and I like to build things, and I like to look at machinery, and I'm looking around here, and I'm seeing art. Is there anything that people can follow or, and just kind of keep up with the shop, even that they could? Uh, Maybe a social media website or a Instagram page. Yeah, we we have uh, um, we do have a website, just sutorial.com, s u t o r i a l dot com. Um, we have an Instagram page, which I think is yeah, just sutorial. And um, we do have a Facebook page, but we I never <laughs> intentionally don't. So up, go follow the the Instagram so you can actually yeah. see what Tim does. Yeah. And we'll, I'll post links to all that stuff in the show description, too. So if anybody is curious. All right, guys. Uh, well, wait a second. I got what? one more. On a scale of 1 to 10, Tim, did we make you more or less Catholic today? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> You're so stupid. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, if anything, it, it just reemphasizes to me the need to... Um, this idea of there's there there is something of fundamental about the idea of the the unity Christian unity, and so hearing you say the things that you you know about um, not trying to convert people one way or the other from Protestantism to Catholicism or yeah. the other way, um, I, I, there's there's something significant about that, and I, I just think it's a neat thing when Protest, uh, Protestants and Catholics or Pentecostals and Baptists, yeah, whatever, whatever the case is, that yeah, whatever you name the group, when Christians of different stripes come together humbly, because there's a lot of humility that's required to look yeah. at the other person and say like, Christ is working there, He's doing something. I might not agree with all the particulars, but there's something significant that's taking place there. I, I to me that just strikes me of the model of Jesus and something that's deeply needed within the church. And so I would hope that um, 
that that would happen both ways, if you will, Protestant to Catholic, Catholic to Protestant, or Orthodox, or you name it. Yeah, I just think people just need to open their ears and sometimes listen and not be so quick to jump to the conclusions that maybe you grew up with are the conclusions that are reinforced each and every Sunday morning. Like it's convictions are a good thing, but listening is probably more important. How are you supposed to love your neighbor if you don't know anything about them because you didn't listen to them? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. To me, that's huge. And I can say that because I am completely guilty for a long time of not listening. Well, Tim, thank you so much for letting us yes, thank keep, you. keep you up till 10 o'clock at night. It's 10 o'clock? Yeah, dude. Wow. wow. It was just... I, it's been a pleasure. Seriously, I'm, I'm glad that you guys contacted me and had me on your, your podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening and making this podcast what it is. It really is you guys, your guys' support and why Jason and I keep coming back and doing this. It's fun for us, but we wouldn't be doing it if we didn't have an audience. So thank you guys yeah, very much. Thank you. All right. Have a good night, everybody. Hope your uh, Thanksgiving was awesome. Mm-hmm.